Welcome, everybody, to Talking Space. This is episode 1502. Depending on where you are, it's recorded on April April 16th or April 17th, depending on which side of the International Day line you're at. This is Mark <laughs> Ratterman. And, and this is Kat Robison. We've got some interesting things to talk about. This will be a little shorter show than what we usually do because there's only the two of us. Uh, the rest of the team, you know how life is. Sometimes it just doesn't work. So Kat and I are going to bring you some news, and we got a few things we're going to go a little deeper into. So Kat, go ahead and give us a start. Yeah, so I think we should start off with probably what was the, the biggest announcement in uh, space since we last recorded, which is we now have a crew for Artemis II. Um, so the crew, uh, which will be the first to leave low Earth orbit since the Apollo missions, includes Commander Reed Reisman, Pilot Victor Glover, Mission Specialist Christina Cook, and from the Canadian Space Agency, Mission Specialist Jeremy Hansen. Um, this crew is going to hit a couple first, besides being the first to leave Earth orbit in quite some time. Um, it's going to be the first woman and the first person of color and the first non-American astronaut to leave low Earth orbit. Uh, so there's been some really great media out there. I encourage our listeners, if you hadn't had a chance, although I'm sure you have, to sort of listen to some of the interviews or look at some of the the. Um, the media that's come out, NASA, as always, has produced some really amazing videos that make you sort of proud to, to sort of watch this mission. Um, I, for one, am excited that uh, Victor Glover is included. This will be his second space flight. Uh, in fact, it's everyone's second space flight except for Jeremy Hansen. This will be his first space flight. So that's pretty exciting to have your first space flight be um, to such an interesting destination. But also, um, Christina Cook does hold the record for the longest single space flight for a woman. Um, so a lot of really interesting things here. As I said, I'm excited about Victor Glover because if you are all watching his launch on one of the uh, SpaceX crew missions, he was just delighted at everything and brought so much joy to that. So I'm looking forward to sort of seeing the next generation of explorers go to the moon and how um, they communicate with us. It'll be exciting. Of course, one of the questions that comes to my mind is here you've got four astronauts. Will any of them fly again during the Artemis program? Yeah, it's very interesting. I, I would like to see more people being able to have subsequent space flights on these deep space exploration missions because with um, shuttle and also with the International Space Station, as well as, you know, Soyuz's program, we've gotten to see astronauts get to go into space multiple times, going to the same missions and bringing a special sort of expertise to that. So it'll be interesting to see if, if the Artemis missions allow for um, astronauts to have that, that same kind of expertise that they would bring to the International Space Station. My thought is probably not in the beginning, but, you know, we'll see where we go. Of course, when we talk about deep space, one of the things that uh, we've talked about on Talking Space in the past is analog-type missions. And NASA is preparing to start, in a couple of months, a Mars habitat that will be occupied by a crew of four for a year. It is at the Johnson Space Center. It's called NASA's Chepia, and who knows how you pronounce it, but it's Crew Health and Performance Exploration Analog. We'll talk more about that as that mission starts, and it'd be interesting to see how the crew does. And keeping with NASA and deep space missions, 
We've also announced that there's going to be yet another review of the Mars sample return. Um, listeners probably know that this has been a mission that is eating into the budget a bit when it comes to planetary exploration, as we discussed last week, um, but has run into not only some cost issues with cost overruns, but technical and other mission challenges. So they're going to convene a second um, Mars Sample Return Independent Review Board that will take place soon. And when there is an update from that, we will give it to you. Also, just staying with some NASA news, uh, we had two missions that we have talked about on the show hit some pretty big milestones this week. Uh, in fact, Mark and I were chatting and he's like, oh, did you see that Juno marked 50 orbits? And I was like, oh, did you see that? Ingenuity on Mars marked 50 flights. So congratulations to both um, Juno for reaching 50 orbits around Jupiter this week and for Ingenuity for celebrating 50 flights. We've also got some really great audio. We'll we'll pop a link up into that um, where the Perseverance rover recorded the first sound of another spacecraft from another planet. So we'll pop that audio uh, link up for you so you can hear it. Something that I just cannot get away from is how some companies do a really incredible job with outreach for STEM. In this case, I want to mention Blue Origin and their Club for the Future. They have a Club for the Future. Uh, this is called the O'Neill Symposium. It's April 24th through 26th. And you had to apply for it, of course, in advance. But students that were accepted, they get the benefit of the opportunity to spend a two-day event with behind-the-scenes tours of Blue Origin's rocket factory at Kennedy, the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex, and a tour of the Merritt Island Wildlife Refuge. Right. I'd also like to point out that Club for the Future has a program called Send a Postcard to Space, and if you think that's interesting, go to clubforthefuture.org and look for the postcard link, and you can look and see what they have actually done. And this isn't small time because they have collaborators that are support them, like the Challenger Center, Space Camp, STEM to Hub, Museum of Flight, Tomatosphere, Flipgrid, and Project Ionos. Pardon my pronunciation on these, but Blue Origin is doing something special for STEM and outreach, and I'll talk more about that later. And for our last news item, something that I know that a lot of listeners are probably following, uh, the FAA has issued a launch license for the test flight of the integrated Starship uh, SpaceX down in Boca, uh, down in Boca Chica, Texas. So this, by the time this episode comes out, that's likely that they will have attempted their first launch because it's for uh, the morning of April 17th in the U.S. As Mark mentioned, in some places, it's already April 17th. So uh, sometimes I can give you updates from the future, but on this one, I have to wait along with the rest of you to get the update on how, how Starship went. Yeah, one of the things I just want to mention real quickly is uh, as a technician working for the FAA and having nothing to do with the commercial spaceflight program, I go to the FAA.gov main page and look at their about and mission and activities, and I see that they regulate and encourage U.S. commercial space transportation industry. So that's kind of a, a, a dual personality. You regulate and you encourage. And I say that because I recently read some 
a blog with an individual that has some major, major concerns about environmental effects of this Starship launch, and we'll see how that comes out in the future. We'll be looking for news, looking for the facts and the details, because we know that Kennedy Space Center has done a great job in coexisting with the wildlife there. Let's hope that Starship and SpaceX will do the same. Yes, I hope so. And hopefully in a future episode, we'll get to have my colleague Joel Lisk on, who's an expert in this area, and we can talk a little bit about these competing missions of bodies that have to both regulate and encourage commercial space. And on to our next segment, which I am going to talk a little bit about an exciting mission that just launched. So ESA, the European Space Agency, has just launched its Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer, or JUICE, uh, on the 14th of April on its eight-year journey to Jupiter. It launched on the Ariane 5, which was, as a side note, the penultimate mission of that rocket because it only has one more mission left before it will be retired in favor of the Ariane 6 rocket. Um, and it has now left uh, on its eight-year mission, as I mentioned. It did scrub. It was supposed to launch on the 13th of April, but as we all know, scrubs are a fact of life when you, when you follow uh, space launches. And it's going to have a couple flybys before it gets to, to Jupiter. So it's going to go by the Earth. It's going to go by uh, the Moon. It's going to go by Venus and getting those gravity assists um, so that it can get up enough speed to travel uh, all the way to the Jovian system. And it will arrive um, for its orbits in Jupiter and a first ever orbit uh, orbits around another moon besides our own moon, it will orbit around Ganymede. So it'll arrive in 2031. Um, so it's going to perform flybys of Europa. As I said, it's going to orbit Ganymede and also Callisto to discover more about the moon's possible habitability for life. Um, so I do want to say a lot of this is like, oh, you know, it's looking for signs of life. And it's actually looking for the conditions that would enable us to one day look for the signs of life. So this is one of those really important stepping stone missions, because as we've talked about a bit on this show before, um, we do expect that probably when we find life in the universe, we're most likely to find that life here in our own solar system. But it's not life as, as you and I are thinking of aliens who are able to communicate and speak with us. It's likely going to be microbial life. Now, since we do know that there are now some volcanic activity uh, around some other moons of Jupiter, around one other moon of Jupiter, Io, as well as we know that Venus has some volcanic activity, that's another possible place where we might see some life because we do know that there are some... Um, life forms that that survive in those extreme environments here on Earth. But these missions are really important because they help us build um, knowledge of the characteristics of, of these areas and how we can design future missions to actually specifically look for signs of life either in the past or right now. I just want to give this quote um, directly from Isa describing the mission, which is that this is an ambitious mission, which will characterize these moons with a powerful suite of remote sensing, geophysical and in situ instruments to discover more about these compelling destinations as potential habitats for past or present life. JUICE will monitor Jupiter's complex magnetic radiation and plasma environment in depth and its interplay with the moon, studying the Jupiter system as an archetype for gas giant systems across the universe. And this is really exciting. What's also exciting is that JUICE isn't the only mission that's going to be in this area. We've also got launching next year um, NASA's Europa Clipper, which will be studying Europa in, 
in detail. And rather than competing with each other, these teams actually team work together. They're in constant contact with each other, and they have a yearly meeting just to touch base because the data that each mission gets is really important for building this more complete picture of the Jovian system. And thanks to really great imaging and, and research from other missions, we know that there's lots of these types of systems around the universe. And this helps us understand the place in which we live, the universe and our, and our own solar system. It's also going to help because it's 10 instruments is the, the most instrumental payload ever sent into deep space exploration. Um, so it's got a lot of strong and powerful instruments. So it's also going to help out another favorite mission of mine. Uh, many of you on the show, uh, if you've been a longtime listener, know that my first launch was actually Juno. So because its orbit is different from Juno, it's going to be able to take some images that um, provide a more complete picture of the Jovian system. And so it's going to help out, um, help us understand more of the data from missions like Juno. So really exciting mission. Um, and I'm, I know that, you know, I'm, my screensaver on my phone is often Jupiter, although right now it's the moon, but I really just love like these images that come back from Jupiter, the understanding that we gain of, you know, how processes are working on other planets are so important. But just a couple quick facts before, uh, before we move on, the cost of this was US $1.65 billion. Um, when it came to the launch, it was the 116th Ariane launch, um, the sixth for ESA. And then, as I mentioned before, there's only one more Ariane 5 launch that remains because it will be replaced by the, the newer Ariane 6 rocket. But Mark, I'm super excited for this mission. I think that we're going to just be blown away by the data. And humans are visual creatures generally. Um, I think that we're going to be blown away by the images that come from this mission as well. You know, it wasn't that long ago that imagery from space was pretty basic and pretty low resolution. And now with more and more in recent times, the missions have got some real powerful photo equipment, video equipment to take us there, uh, you know, as a as kind of a tag along to the mission. I, I appreciate that. Um, Juice has already sent us its first selfies, which include Earth in the background. This is something that I really love, sort of the spacecraft selfies. Um, so Juice has already sent us those, some of those first selfies, and we'll pop a link in the show notes so that you can see um, what Juice is seeing when it's looking on itself and looking back on Earth. Speaking of launches, uh, I don't think we had met at this point, but you said you were at the Juno launch? Yes, I was. I was too. And this was ah. this is pre-talking <laughs> space. You must have been at the National Social, right? Yeah, I was at the NASA Social. So it was my it was my first launch and I I had a great time. It was fantastic. So this was pre-talking space and um it was my second NASA Social. I had gone out to JPL for one of theirs. Um and it was it was a lot of fun. That's where I actually met Cassie for the first time in person. Well, I have to tell you, I was there, like I said, but I was there for Talking Space, and I was up on the roof of the launch control complex across the street. And with that uh, bunch of staid, is, if that's the right term, old timers, <laughs> you know, the rocket launched and the photographers took pictures and people watched and blah, blah, blah. And across the street, I hear this, woohoo! And it's like, <laughs> yep. That's the NASA social crowd. They know they know how to share excitement. Oh, yeah, it was great. I just nothing can compare to the first time having those 
those SR, those rocket boosters just hit you physically the way the sound, like nothing can prepare you for that. I'm, I'm always bummed. I never got to see a shuttle launch and really get those shuttle SRPs. Um, but yeah, nothing, nothing compares to the physical sensations of being at a launch in my opinion, because it just, you know, you can't really understand the power of sound until you can feel it physically hit you. And, um, it was amazing. So that's really cool that we were at that same launch. So Cassie and I always laugh because that was her, the last launch that she's been at. And it was my first launch. So until she went to crew four, um, last year. So <laughs> she's finally broken the, the streak of not going to, to launches, but yeah, it was a fantastic launch. So I have a special spot for, for June, for Jupiter in general. Yeah, for sure. Let's hope we can uh, meet for an Artemis someday. Yes, <laughs> I definitely, definitely want to see an SLS launch and, and see people launch for my first time. Fingers crossed. So should I go on into more launch talk? Yeah, let's hear it. Okay. Uh, you know, I mentioned earlier about STEM and outreach and such as that. Well, there is a program called the NASA Student Launch Program. And I'm going to read from uh, just part of a page out of the handbook for this. The Office of STEM Engagement at NASA Marshall Space Flight Center seeks proposals from colleges and universities to conduct NASA University Student Launch Initiative and qualified high schools, middle schools, and informal education groups to conduct the NASA Student Launch Initiative during the 22-23 academic year. The NASA Student Launch is one of eight Artemis student challenges whose mission is to build foundational knowledge and introduce students to topics, techniques, technologies critical to the success of the agency's Artemis program. NASA Student Launch aims to inspire the newest generation of space explorers, the Artemis generation. They aim to reach a broad audience of colleges, universities, secondary institutions across the nation in a nine-month commitment to design, build, launch, and fly a payload and vehicle components that support NASA research on high-powered rockets. So enough about that. I watched this. It was on uh, the NASA Marshall Space Flight Center YouTube channel. We'll have a link in the notes for this event that was actually yesterday, April 15th, 2023. And the event started with speakers introducing the event at this, uh, I think it was called Bragg Farms in Tony, Alabama, north of Marshall Space Flight Center. And among the speakers was a retired astronaut Dr. Jan Davis. She was a veteran of three space flights, STS-47, STS-60, and STS-85. And one of the things that you lose track of, I, I looked at her class of astronaut candidates from 1987, and I recognized faces, and I realized I had forgotten names. And yet, these people... By and large, astronauts do such a job at outreach and speaking and inspiring. And inspiring is uh, a big part of what had this event to happen in the first place. So let me tell you about the rockets. 
They range from 5 to 12 feet tall. They weighed from 25 to 55 pounds. Some of them took off rather slowly. Some of them took off like, holy cow, where'd it go? Some of them launched. Some of them took a few extra attempts at pushing the button. Uh, they actually had to uh, replace igniters on a few of these rockets because it just would not fly on the first attempt. Some demonstrated a nominal recovery, and some demonstrated the lawn dart mode of reentry. Unfortunately, part of the objectives was to have a, uh, a main parachute pop out and under a thousand feet. I mean, these rockets went from three to five thousand feet, and probably some higher. But the object was to have a drogue chute come out at apogee, kind of slow the rocket down, and then when they got down to six, seven hundred feet, pop the main chute because you want to keep the rocket within your launch area. Surprisingly, they had aircraft that intruded on the rocket launch area, so they had to hold for aircraft. <laughs> they didn't have any boats. They didn't have any boats in the box like we've seen from shuttle. Getting a very real life experience of launch here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they did. Um, along with, and there were forty six teams. I left that out. They were from all over the country, and as they launched, there were fires on the ground. There were shoots that didn't deploy. There were paint jobs that were absolutely phenomenal on these rockets. There were rockets with no paint jobs. There were teams that cheered. There were teams that had Hawaiian shirts on. There was a team that always had honey buns for snacks when they were working on their rocket. Another team always forgot to order pizza. One team had a 40-hour drive to get to Tony, Alabama for this event. Uh, teams had snow days where they couldn't meet. There was a team of uh, a Boy Scout team, and their age range, I believe, was 12 to 17 years old. They had a 4-H club from a multi-county area. Um, high school team, student teams thanked their parents for late-night pickup from these meetings, from these work sessions. When the teams were asked, there were a lot of interviews that were part of the events that day during the volleys of, of launches. But uh, So they had interviews, and so some of the teams came up. There was a team from uh, – several teams from Florida. There was UCF represented, um, University of Florida – uh, some of the teams had high numbers of freshmen. They'll be back. One team had a rocket that they rebuilt after a crash just two weeks prior to this event. Other teams had rockets where they had a test launch that landed in trees and the rockets wanted to stay there. I think they actually had to cut <laughs> down a tree to uh, get one rocket back. These are big rockets. These are big <laughs> rockets. Uh, Purdue was one of the universities mentioned as having a high number of astronauts among their alumni. The U.S. Naval Academy was also quite proud of the number of astronauts from their graduates, and they let the world know, go Navy, beat Army. <laughs> Back in oh, October, I... go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, I just love this. I love just all of these stories because... You know, this is student launch competition, but these are the same stories that we hear within within space, right? Um, failed attempts, teamwork being necessary, having to change the plan on the fly, having something go wrong, and then you know, working together to still still get those rockets off. So I just, it's just, it's fun to hear about. Oh, 
I, I'm not even halfway there. <laughs> <laughs> in October, this is April now, but in October, they had the teams had to set an altitude goal. In other words, part of the requirements of their launch for award purposes was to set a goal. And in some cases, they didn't even have a complete design and they're setting a goal of 4,600 feet. Or I think one team had some odd number like uh, 5,279 feet. Um, but they had to set a goal in some cases before it was even designed. The uh, U.S. Military Academy rocket had a thrust to weight ratio. I, 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 cut various, I caught details here and there as they interviewed but the U.S. Military Academy rocket had a thrust-to-weight ratio of 31 to 1. And oh my gosh, wow. it, some of them, like I said, they took, took off extremely fast. There was a team from Morris County, New Jersey. They had five team members. Wow. Five. The handbook, which I've looked at, was 135 pages. And this included things like... Uh, proposal requirements, milestones, a preliminary design review, a critical design review, a flight readiness review, a launch readiness review, a post-launch assessment review. They had requirements for STEM engagement. They had a safety section of the manual, high power rocket safety code. They were going to have awards for middle and high school division and, of course, the universities. Um, they had NASA engineers reviewing their designs. This is no small thing. And some of the students, when they talked about, you know, what was the process like? What were some of the challenges for you? And some of the teams said, one of the things we learned is, is project management skills, time management. We, you know, we're going to get better at that because we had a hard time with that. They had to submit paperwork. They had to submit things that went to NASA for this event. This was no small time thing. And even the high schools and the younger students were participating with slightly different requirements, but they still had a lot of work to do. I'm going to tell you that those skills that they learned are going to be valuable. I recently had an industry consultation um, with the industry here in Australia about what they need from their graduates. And one of the biggest things that they were saying were project management skills, that a lot of people are coming out of their undergraduate degrees and they don't have the skills necessary to manage a project from end to end because a lot of our learning isn't set up to, to provide that. Um, so it's really exciting to, to, when you have projects like this, that you know that there is a way to make sure that people going into the STEM industry are learning these skills and they're doing it in something that's, I think, very fun for them as well. During the uh, interview parts of the program that, uh, that I watched yesterday, that's again available on YouTube, um, they asked the team, did they want to thank anybody? Did they want to say anything to the folks back home? And some of the younger team said, I want to thank my parents for all the th things that they did supporting us for this. Um, they thanked mentors. I heard doctor mentioned more times where students were thanking Dr. So-and-so and Dr. So-and-so for the help they gave them for guidance that they received. And I want to reflect back for just a minute on my experience from 2015 up until a couple years ago with first robotics competition. I've talked about it on the show before. But as a mentor with a high school 
first robotics competition team, I found out firsthand how hard the students will work on something in addition to their other responsibilities and classes and studies that they have. And I was just blown away in the case of FIRST with the skill level of, of high school students. And you don't get that unless you've got some spark of inspiration somewhere prior that has you as a, as a young student, or in my case, one of the things I like about my job is that occasionally I still get to learn new stuff. I, <laughs> and that to me, that's the fun. But these students got inspired by different people. And Jan Davis, who spoke as a former astronaut at the beginning of the event, it was obvious from what I've what she said and what I've read about her that she got a lot of inspiration. I think it was I forget which team it was, but one of the teams they ask him, you know, y'all are from a college that astronauts have graduated from. Anybody here want to be an astronaut? Yeah, there were some hands raised. <laughs> and you know, whether it's to be an astronaut, whether it's to be a, an engineer, maybe a, a tech-type helper, um, I, I've never seen myself as much when I was with the high school robotics team, eh, partly because so much of my experience is with technology that goes back anywhere from 10 to 40 years. So, eh, you know, <laughs> that kind of makes it tough for me in, in state-of-the-art uh, discussions. But that inspiration is priceless. And I want to encourage everybody to uh, maybe watch this. Watch some rockets absolutely soar. Uh, there was one rocket that when it launched, the main chute came out, and you've got two sections of rocket swinging under a drogue chute. The main chute pops out. One of the rocket sections swings into it, collapses the main chute, and now it's flying back at terminal velocity to the ground. And maybe at 200 feet above ground, the main chute gets free of the, of the rocket section, reinflates, and slows down <laughs> just before it does the lawn dart. Oh, I love this. Well, I think just it's so important to have to have joy and laughter in what we do because space can be, you know, we say this and it's cliche, but it's true. Space is hard. Um, so it's really important to be able to, to inspire the next generation, but also give them the time to have joy and laughter as, you know, as I said, one of the reasons I so enjoyed watching Victor Glover's first flight to space is that he was just so to overuse a word that I'm using, so joyful in it and just had such um, delight in being there. And so it's it's really lovely to be able to sort of see these things where you see the hard work, but you can have these moments of of um, of getting to experience that and be in the moment. And I'm sure it was, it was hard for the team to see that, uh, but hopefully they'll be able to look back on that and have a bit of laughter and, and um, some admiration for their, their main parachute being able to, <laughs> to recover itself. Yeah. I think they describe that as going through all the emotions possible. <laughs> very much so. Very much so. Nothing like a good five, four, three, two, one, 
followed by a successful recovery. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think as we wrap up, this is a short show. We're not going to try with Talking Space. We can't possibly tell our listeners everything that's going on. So this kind of follows what Kat and I have done in this episode. This kind of follows with how I think of Talking Space going down the road. We can't do everything but I hope we can for sure do the stuff that, that is a spark for us, that inspires us, that excites us, because we want to share that with you. And I want you, our listeners, to certainly please, when you've got something that you think is cool, even if it falls on deaf ears, share it. Talk to people. If you've got young people that you're around that you can, that you can talk to, give it a shot. You never know what's going to make a difference in someone's life. So let's do those good things. Let's be encouraging to one another. And uh, Kat, would you like to say anything as we wrap up? I just think that's great. I actually, um, Kaveh, my partner and I, we went to a birthday party this weekend. At the party, um, the person, Sandy, who was hosting it, it was her birthday. She asked everyone to bring a story, right? Um, and to share a story or maybe poem or song. And it was, she had set up, you know, in a dark room, sort of a little stage with some fairy lights behind it. And everyone, you know, if they wanted to, got up and some people were there with their listening ears. And um, she made everyone, one of her arbitrary rules was you had to start with once upon a time. And at the end of it, you had to give the moral of the story. And I just think it's, you know, a moment of synchronicity that you would say that, Mark, because I actually shared a collection of poetry I'm working on that's inspired by my love of space. And the moral of my story after I shared a few of those early poems was, you know, if you're passionate about something, share it with others. So I think it was just lovely to hear you say, um, if you're passionate, you should share it because it really does impact. So it was a lovely moment of synchronicity just now, uh, synchronicity just now to hear you say that because, you know, I think that's the moral of, of this episode of Talking Space is if you're passionate, you should share it. If you have any comments for us, go to TalkingSpaceOnline.com. You should find links there to both our individual emails as well as the mailbag at TalkingSpaceOnline.com. You can certainly reach us via social media. I'm not going to try and cover all that right now, but please <laughs> communicate with us. Give us your thoughts. Give us uh, some, some tips on the things that inspire you that you know may just be the thing that'll, hey, wow, I didn't know that. I want to talk about that on the show. So please share with us. And with that... Thank you for listening. Good night. <laughs> Good night. It's like morning here. <laughs>